Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest in With Respect is a fellow we have had on um, for a, on a prior occasion, Jim Mitzelfeld. Jim is the is senior counsel uh, to the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist. And in our prior show, we talked about his background, how he um, got the uh, Pulitzer Prize, why he moved into uh, the, the area of the law, and we learned the value of two words, persistence and accountability. And we're going to develop some of that today. Uh, Jim Mitzelfeld, Senior Counsel, the Investigation Division of the Officer of Inspector General, Department of Justice. With respect, we'll be right back. So, Jim, how are you today? Fantastic. Good. Great to talk to you, Jeff. Well, it's great talking to you. In the last uh, show that we did, we talked about your background, how you uh, started in Oakland County, Michigan, at a little place called Beverly Hills, and, yes, not California, Michigan, and how you kind of wended your way through being a reporter, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, for a major U.S. newspaper, the Detroit News, and then went to law school, and then got some experience in the Department of Justice, uh, the Federal Department of Justice in Washington, and and we'll find out uh, uh, elsewhere. So, wearing that background, Jim, what's going on in your life these days? Well, um, I work at the Department of Justice, of course. Uh, I also have uh, uh, two adult children, happily married to uh, my wife, who also works in the Justice Department. She's a paralegal. And, uh, you know, I, I look over the horizon. I think maybe I'd like to uh, retire in a year or two and maybe write a book or teach journalism or law. So that's kind of that's sort of the big picture. Well, first of all, I, I have never met her. We, you and I are friends. This is uh, we've been going back for many years. Uh, as friends, you still owe me a steak dinner, but uh, you know I'm not uh, I'm not picky. I'll take the steak anywhere I can get it. Um, but I've never met uh, Lisa, but I do know that she must be a saint to put up with the zigs and zags of your life uh, and uh, of of uh, life generally in politics and in government. So we left off talking last time about your. 
uh, going to the honors program with the Department of Justice. And I will tell you a, a, a vignette about that. A friend of mine uh, was the uh, head of the uh, Office of Personnel Management, I think it was, for the Department of Justice, and um, came to me after uh, I became uh, chief assistant of the deputy attorney general. And, uh, she was trying to convince me to help her with her budget as moving it through the, through the department. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to. Um, but I just was curious as to uh, what do you guys do? And which was a little bit disingenuous because she and I had a conflict over uh, hiring a particular assistant or two. And uh, she would question why I had the, um, the, the poor sense of hiring these people who turned out to be very successful afterwards. But at any rate, I said, sure. So I got a call from her one day, and she said, uh, gee, we have a reception for all the honors program people uh, down in the, in the great hall in the department. I said, well, that's, what are the honors people? Oh, this is, the, this is the, the gem of the Department of Justice. This is our, our, our jewel. And I said, okay. So I went down there, and it was a nice reception. There was maybe 50 people, and, and they were all circulating. And I found something interesting. I found that as soon as I said um, that I was from the deputy's office, now, yeah, you're from the deputy's office. You're up on the fourth and fifth floors. Fine, okay. But then I said, well, I'm actually um, also U.S. attorney in western Michigan. Oh, my God, you're a U.S. attorney? Hmm. This is what we, what we want. And at any rate, I then started gathering people like, like uh, bears to honey, and, and they kept saying, how do we become assistant U.S. attorneys? How do we become the assistant U.S. attorneys? So I went around the, t the, around the groups that I had. There was, at one point, there was five or six people. And, um, and I, I, I started asking where they went to law school, and they were Harvard, Yale, um, Chicago, Michigan, uh, the, the big law schools, the, the top five law schools in the country. And I, I didn't hear anybody from, oh, the University of Illinois, the University of Alabama. Uh, and so finally, after the meeting was over, I, a nice reception, I went back up to my office, and a couple of days later I got a call from this friend who said, uh, well, did you like it? And I said, sure, it was great, very interesting. But, you know, I was just wondering. Uh, I didn't see any, I just saw a lot of people from Harvard, Yale, uh, and uh, so on. And she said, well, you know, we are very selective. This is, we only go to the finest law schools. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, you like, so you don't recruit for this program elsewhere? And she said, well, you know, John, this is the only the creme of the creme come to our uh, honors program. I said, um, do you know where I went to law school? And there, there was, she got pale. She said, uh, no. I said, John Marshall Law School in Chicago. And then she got paler. And she said, oh, but, but and I said, it didn't hurt me. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so hey, the final part of this story was that, that years later, I happened to be back in the department uh, after leaving it, uh, leaving the government, and I happened to run into her, and I said, so how's it going? She said, great. Oh, by the way, John, you're going to be so happy. We are now interviewing and uh, for recruiting in Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Illinois, Alabama, everywhere. I thought, you know, you can have, with a few remarks, you can have a big effect on people's lives, and not only, um, not only for your own career, but for other people as well. That 
There are people out there who have been interviewed for that program that wouldn't have been, probably, uh, if I hadn't made that silly remark to her. So uh, I w I'm, I'm raising this story because a little event in somebody's life or in a country's life or department's life can make a big difference um, for good or for ill. So yep. tell me, what was your life? What, you got into the department and you started doing what? So I, um, the, the, the uh, section that I joined was uh, in the civil division uh, called the Office of Consumer Litigation. Um, it's now, uh, its name has been changed to the Consumer Protection Branch. Um, but its, it's uh, role has basically stayed the same. And, and uh, the interesting thing about it is even though it's in the civil division, uh, most of the cases they do are criminal. Um, and I'll explain why. So they are the attorneys for the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer, Pro the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and they also do a lot of, uh, or at least did, I think they probably do less of this now, um, the uh, odometer fraud cases for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, the the beauty of of this uh, working this office was I had some fantastic mentors and uh, are you are you okay there sir yeah I was just uh, I got something caught in my throat go ahead uh, no worries so um, the doing these cases um, for the the different agencies I mentioned was just a great learning experience in particular because all of our cases were in U.S. attorney's offices around the country. So in the five years that I was at OCL, um, I had cases in 10 different federal districts. So I got to appear in uh, courtrooms in uh, uh, Nebraska, Utah, uh, Iowa, um, trying to think of some of the other, Tennessee, um, and uh, tech and, um, and and Michigan as well, actually. In fact, I, I handled a sentencing case uh, in the Western District of Michigan there in Grand Rapids uh, in front of Judge Enslin. Um, it was a, a guy that had, had uh, been selling watered down orange juice um, and he was it was a sentencing. So in any case, the, doing these cases in all these different federal districts was a tremendous, experience because I got to see how different each U.S. Attorney's Office practices. And um, I got to appear in grand juries all over the country to see how different grand jury practice was. Um, and so after doing that for five years, um, uh, I, I, a couple things happened. One, I thought, boy, I'd really like to be an assistant U.S. Attorney and not always be on an airplane every time I have a case. And also, I really wanted to come back to Michigan. Um, so I applied, and I was lucky enough to get a, a position. I actually had an offer from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago and Detroit. And um, uh, Fitzgerald, the U.S. Attorney in, in Chicago, uh, had offered me the job. And, um, you know, I, I said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? <laughs> 
his reaction suggested I was the first person that had ever not accepted the position on the spot. <laughs> that is a true. Uh, that is a true. Probably a true statement. That's a great office. <laughs> oh, it's a tremendous office, and and uh, there's plenty of times where I thought, boy, maybe I should have taken that that offer at the time. But uh, but my parents, my elderly parents, were in Detroit, the Detroit area, and that's where I was from, and and I have a lot had a lot of ties, obviously, to Michigan, as we talked about earlier. So. Um, the, you know, the chance to come to Detroit was too good to be true. And, uh, so then we, my wife and I moved back to, to Michigan and, uh, I became an AUSA, uh, in Detroit. And it was, it was really a thrill because my parents got to see me sworn in, um, you know, and, uh, and occasionally see me in court in action. Uh, AUSA is assistant United States attorney. Exactly. What kind of things did you do there? So uh, in Detroit, I started out on the civil side. I was the civil uh, um, health care fraud coordinator. So um, it's a complicated area of the law, but there's something called a TTAM, where if somebody's aware of uh, fraud on the federal government, they can file uh, a lawsuit uh, to expose the, the fraud under the False Claims Act. It's filed under seal. And then those cases are reviewed by the Justice Department to determine if they, they want to go forward and take the case. If they take the case and it's successful, um, the person who originally comes forward, it's called a relator, can get 15% of the amount that the Justice Department ultimately gets. And in one of the cases, we used an expert witness who had been the whistleblower on the Columbia HCA healthcare fraud case. Um, and this individual received $50 million for being the whistleblower. So if, if uh, any of you people in your audience out there are aware of fraud on the federal government, you can make a dime if you report it. So please come forward. Anyway, um, so I did those cases for about 18 months, and I really wanted to do mostly criminal cases, which I had been doing in Washington. So I was able to slide over and become the, the criminal health care fraud coordinator in Detroit and uh, – I had some really uh, fascinating cases involving uh, doctors that had uh, uh, been engaged in false billing, and uh, and, th- and that was a, just a wonderful experience. Now, of all of those cases that you practiced, that you prosecuted, which which one stands out as the one that you think most interesting, but also had the greatest impact? Because not only not every case is is similarly impactful. Exactly. Yeah. No. The one that really sticks out for me was a case, uh, and there's there's parts of this that are just sort of will will sort of uh, blow your mind, maybe even your mind, uh, but uh, even with your experience. But there was a de- doctor in Detroit who had been engaged in uh, illegal activity. He was convicted. He went to prison and he got out and he asked for his medical license back. Um, so even though he'd been a federal, you know, a convicted felon, uh, the, the Michigan State Board of Medical, uh, you know, their board gave him his license back. So he practiced again, not surprisingly, engaged in somewhat similar, similar criminal conduct. He was charged and convicted and went to federal prison again. They took his law, his medical license. But amazingly, 
he petitioned and he got it back. So by the time I come a, come across this case, this this doctor is practicing with a medical license, despite the fact that he's been to federal prison twice. Um, and so the what he was doing was he was operating a kind of a Ponzi scheme where um, he would he couldn't bill Medicare because they were smart enough to not let him bill, even though he had his medical license. But Blue Cross Blue Shield had not uh, suspended his his ability to bill. And uh, I'm not even sure they could have under the under the way the law was structured at the time. So he what he did was he knew that he could make the most money if he billed for physical therapy. So he wasn't a physical therapist, but he was a doctor. And uh, he started recruiting patients, uh, fake patients, to allow him to use their their Blue Cross Blue Shield number. And he would submit a claim saying that he had provided physical therapy uh, for these individuals. Um, and what he did was he recruited sort of some super recruiters. And so then they recruited other people and he'd give them a piece of the action. Before it was done, uh, we had about 50 people that en ended up uh, being convicted. Um, some of the people, the lower level people who were witnesses, we, we allowed them to do pretrial diversion, but we made all of them pay back the money uh, in order to participate in the, in the pretrial diversion program. But at least 12 people were convicted of felonies. But ultimately, we had the trial with this gentleman lasted three weeks. We had charged him with 110 counts of health care fraud. And uh, in the middle of the trial, the judge called everybody to the bench and uh, and said to the defense lawyer, this is the longest change of plea hearing I've ever sat through. <laughs> <laughs> so, so ultimately, at the end of the trial, he was convicted. Uh, it took the jury less than an hour <laughs> to find him guilty of 110 counts. His biller also was convicted. And when, when the judge went to sentence him, and uh, it's interesting, this gentleman's name, he just got out of prison. Uh, his name was Zach Brown, and I don't know if you're into country music, but uh, it's not the famous artist, uh, the country music artist, Zach Brown band. But anyway, Zach Brown, when the when the judge went to sentence him, she said, I'm convinced that you will get your medical license back when you got out of prison. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm not going to let you get out of prison for a long time. She sentenced him to 16 years in prison. And his biller got three years in prison. One of the greatest pieces of evidence in the trial was, well, a couple of things. First of all, anybody who's gotten physical therapy over the years, as I certainly have, uh, you know, you miss appointments from time to time. And if you're getting treatment, you don't necessarily get all the different modalities every time you go in. But every one of Zach Brown's patients received all five modalities. Uh, and what I say by that, you know, heat treatment, electric stimulation, physical manipulation, uh, whatever, all the different things. They always got all five every time, and they all attended three appointments a week. They never missed appointments. Um, you know, it, the, the, the consistency of the claims were asinine. But my favorite part was that during, I don't know if you remember the big um, power outage that affected the eastern half of the United States, um, it was like April, must have been the, the early 2000s. Anyway, 
um, all of his patients received uh, electric stimulation treatment on the day when there was no power uh, in, the, in the city of Detroit. And so that was just one more thing that helped us with our case. And the other thing was they all cashed their, their uh, Blue Cross Blue, che- Blue Shield checks at a bar uh, across the street from the doctor's office. So uh, it was uh, a fascinating case, and, and there were a lot of spinoffs um, that, that came from, from the case, too. So yeah, that, was, uh, that was really rewarding. back on with respect with Jim Mitzelfeld, who is um, <clears throat> currently senior counsel for the D- investigations division of the Office of Inspector General in Washington for the Department of Justice. Also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. So this is John Smetanka. Jim, when we broke, you had told us about this great case uh, with uh, Dr. Zach Brown, I believe you said. Uh, who was ripping off the uh, medical system, uh, payments, insurance companies, I'm sure, and the government, I guess, uh, for lots and lots of money. And that had to have some sort of an effect on other practitioners, I would imagine, who might consider that sort of behavior. What do you think? Well, that, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that... that um you know, it's it's doing having done healthcare fraud cases. Um, I'm sure you've come across this, and when you were a U.S. attorney, but it's it's somewhat shocking that somebody would go through all the effort to to obtain a medical license. Um, you know, more more schoolwork than I'd ever want to do, um, and uh, and then they would abuse that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of because you know, doctors generally speaking, it's it's. I, I'm, I'm aware that there's a wide range of salaries for doctors, depending on where you are and what you do, but it's a pretty good living usually. And uh, to throw that all away is, is surprising. But, you know, I can just tell you from all the news releases that I see at the Department of Justice, um, you know, the number of, of folks, uh, you know, trying to bilk uh, Medicare or, or the insurance companies, you know, it, it remains amazing how often it happens. And the dollar amounts that, uh, I mean, that's the way a doctor can really get rich if they, you know, have some kind of scam uh, out there. So anyway, um, you know, every time we did a case like the one I mentioned, you know, we would try to publicize it, issue a news release. uh, And that case obviously got quite a bit of coverage um, to try to send a signal out there to you, you get individual deterrence, specific deterrence, because that doctor can't do it anymore. and then you're always looking for general deterrence. You're hoping that the other doctors will see what happened to this doctor and think twice about uh, about doing it. And I can tell you this, like, 
Um, there are certain parts of the country that really were had rampant healthcare fraud, and the Department of Justice, to its credit, uh, set up some some healthcare fraud strike forces that would go as groups of agents and attorneys would go to specific cities uh, to just try to increase the impact. And so I know Detroit was one of the places that had has people from Washington who you know, basically are, are working out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, but that's all they do is, is health care fraud. One of the interesting things that I've seen both as United States Attorney, uh, actually even when I was a county prosecutor in, in Berrien County, Michigan, and also now in private practice, um, is the degree of, let me say it nicely, gullibility that people who are recruited into Ponzi schemes uh, seem to, to have. Uh, and you wonder why, after all the publicity that's been given, and let's talk about Ponzi schemes, where, where come, someone says, look, I'm going to give you a deal. You, know, you just give me $1,000, and I'll return that money to you in 14 days with 37% interest. I've got this great um, program I've got. In one case, it was a uh, grocery store, grocery wholesale business. Another time it was uh, uh, viatical care for uh, people buying buying uh, insurance policies just so they could make some money. It just went on and on and on. So we've seen cattle, we've seen uh, books, we've seen, uh, as I say, serial cases. And by that I mean the uh, Kellogg's company was, you know, they make cereal. But at any rate, um, and I end up saying to these people, and many of them are what we call reputable citizens, and you say, excuse me, why did you get into this? Well, you know, it sounded like a good deal. And I say, but if, <laughs> you know, you're giving this guy money, and he's getting giving you 37% interest in, in two weeks, didn't something strike you as being odd? And they look at you with blank stares and then kind of sheepishly say, well, I guess I should have. Oh, yeah, you should have. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I had a case when I was at Maine Justice at the Office of Consumer Litigation where the these two mobsters in Kansas City were selling uh, vending machines. And 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 the big joke that that they were selling was uh, vending machine locations for ridiculous amounts of money. So for like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, they would sell somebody 10 vending machines. And the big thing that they would tell them is, hey, we know where all the great locations are for these machines. And ultimately, these scammers didn't even provide the machines in some cases and a few other cases they did. Um, and these were one of the defendants that I prosecuted had uh, criminal convictions upheld in two different courts of appeals, <laughs> federal courts of appeals. Um, it was quite amazing, his criminal history. But, but, the, but you know, you, you talk to these folks, the victims, and it was heartbreaking to hear somebody who, you know, limited means, but gave somebody their life savings. Um, and so... You know, one of the things that that office does now, and I know it because my wife works there, they, they, they have a special unit devoted to elder fraud. So they, you know, they're trying to, to, to really 
emphasize and prioritize prosecutions of folks that are preying on the elderly. And, uh, you know, again, for your listeners, uh, please help your your elderly uh, family members, um, you know, make them aware that if, if they get a phone call asking them for, for information to not give it out uh, because these guys are under every rock, I swear. Yeah, my father would, uh, when he was uh, in his uh, mid-80s, <clears throat> would, when one of those uh, scamsters called, and we had a lot of them, uh, and he would, uh, they say, hi, this is uh, uh, the Acme, uh, whatever it is, the company, and we have a program for you. And, and so my father would listen for a couple of minutes and then put the receiver down and walk away and do some stuff. And then he'd come back 20, 30, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, a minute back, and he'd pick up the phone, and the guy's still talking. And he would say, I'm sorry, I'm totally deaf. Can I, can I call you back? And, and hung up. So the point, the point is that uh, you're right. Some people who have no, um, they're worried about with inflation, with uh, the cost of living, with their dwindling savings, uh, they, they, they they'll grab for an investment they think will help them, and it turns out, you know, they lose everything. Or they think they're helping out law enforcement. One of the classic ones is, uh, I'm, call- I'm with the FBI, and um, we think there's been a fraud in your bank, and we, and we need to uh, have your help to solve this problem, to investigate this. And so you have to give us your bank information so that we can, you know, and it goes on and on and on. But the person who is trying to be helpful to the Bureau or to whoever ends up giving the, away their life savings or everything that was in that bank account. And today it can go beyond just that account because of the um, uh, omniscience of the, of, the, uh, of the fraudsters. They can, they can use uh, basic information and, and go out after more, uh, even out of, out beyond that bank account. So it's a, it's a, it is a terrible thing to see uh, the, the people who lose everything uh, but, you know, we've got people like you out there trying to make a difference. So that's good. What are the kind of things that you do after the U.S. Attorney's Office? Well, I tell you what, let's, so, take, let's take a break right now, uh, okay, sure. and we'll be right back. This is John Smetanka. We're talking to Jim Mitzelfeld, who is now Senior Counsel to the Office of in, uh, Inspector General in the Investigations Division in the Department of Justice in Washington. Uh, we'll be right back. This is John Smetanka.
back on With Respect with Jim Mitzelfeld, who is Senior Counsel to the Office of Investigations of the Department of the Officer Inspector General in, in Washington, the Department of Justice. Uh, this is John Smetanka. Jim, when we broke, you were doing consumer litigation and also healthcare investigation, but you've gone beyond that now. What, what other things have you done? Yeah, so in, in 2007, um, when I, after I'd been in Detroit for five years, um, my wife got the itch to move back to Washington, D.C. And uh, when, when we had come back to Detroit, I, I had promised her that after five years, if, if she missed being in Washington, we'd move back. And so she, she exercised her option and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, happy wife, happy life. So uh, uh, we moved back to Washington. And uh, it was a tough time uh, financially because uh, about a week or two after we put our house on the market in Ann Arbor, uh, the Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company uh, decided to close down its, its uh, laboratory or operations in Ann Arbor. And so instead of 20 houses in my uh, market range, there were now about 300. Um, and so uh, we got just annihilated on the uh, the sale of our house and the purchase of our new house. We, we basically bought a house in the Washington area that was twice as expensive and half as big. Oh, um, yeah. But anyway, but, but uh, there's a lot of reasons we like living here. So anyway, we, we moved back to D.C. because I uh, was able to get a job with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia and, uh, and in, the, in their fraud and public corruption section. Um, and that was just, that was really fascinating. A um, lot of interesting cases. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I greatly enjoyed that. But there were, there were a number of things about that office that uh, made it sort of less appealing than in Detroit. And, um, and so I, I got to the point where I'd been a federal prosecutor for 13 years. Uh, my kids were, were involved in lots of activities. And um, it was becoming kind of harder and harder to achieve the kind of life work life balance I wanted. So I was looking for other options in the department. And uh, I, I uh, put in for a detail at a unit called the office of professional responsibility. Uh, OPR is the uh, acronym and they investigate uh, misconduct complaints uh, against federal prosecutors uh, around the department of justice. So it's a little bit like um, the inspector general's office, but a little bit different. So um, I did that for about nine months and I was really enjoying it, but that's when I got a call from uh, somebody I had met at the NASA office of inspector general. And they said, Hey, uh, we need somebody with your background. Uh, we'd love to have you, uh, you know, apply for this position over here. And, uh, it was such an exciting opportunity in my mind because uh, being a, a child of this, the space age and uh, always having been interested in space and NASA, uh, the thought of working at NASA was just, you know, very appealing. So uh, I went over there and met those folks and uh, I ended up taking a position as the investigative counsel, which was a brand new position that they were creating in that office. And it was really fun because I was, I was helping the agents in that office. There were about 80 uh, NASA uh, agents in offices, mostly at various NASA centers, uh, do their criminal cases. And 
Um, I was able to participate in some of the interviews and investigations as well. Um, I did an investigation of, uh, along with an auditor, into how uh, NASA decided to where to locate the four retired space shuttle orbiters, uh, because that became a real hot potato. They only had four of them, and uh, there were about eight places in the country that wanted them. So Congress was very upset. Certain members of Congress were upset when they figured out that their their area wasn't getting a space shuttle um, for a museum and that sort of thing. So I did an investigation of that and and uh, uh, did some investigations of astronaut misconduct and um, all sorts of interesting things. But uh, so that was that was a thrill. Um, we had a we had a seminar once at, uh, at the Kennedy Space Center at the, the the little cottage where the Apollo astronauts stayed right before they they uh, took off and uh, so much history. So uh, I greatly enjoyed that. And um, uh, there were some important cases, I feel like, that we did about, um, you know, NASA scientists who, uh, you know, were, were offered something very lucrative. Uh, you know, in the private sector that was inappropriate, investigated those. And we had a lot of cases involving um, investigations into uh, attempts by the Chinese government to try to uh, lure, uh, you know, sci American scientists into revealing uh, information. Um, and so those cases were interesting as well. So uh, I did that for five years. Um, and then finally, I uh, saw an opening back at the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General, uh, and I applied for that, and I've been doing that since 2015. Now, I'm not going to ask you any about what kind of cases you're currently investigating, except I, I think you said earlier that they range from all different kinds of behavior by people in the government and outside the government, uh, interacting with the government, which raise questions as to their uh, propriety. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I could just tell you generally at the at Department of Justice. So we have a lot of cases um, involving uh, BOP, Bureau of Prisons employees, who are bringing contraband into the prison. Um, that that's we we have we've got quite a few of those uh, convictions, um, and and then. Occasionally, there are FBI agents or DEA agents uh, that go astray and uh, and do things they shouldn't do, um, and so th those cases keep us busy. All right, I'm going to I'm going to stop at that point, probing that area. But I'm sure your work is uh, currently quite ex quite interesting. What I do want to do is go back and talk about your uh, your investigative journalism career, and I think. I have a, uh, something has been bothering me for years, and maybe I'd like to hear your reaction to it. Um, I have been uh, in public life uh, or in uh, 25 years in, in uh, public uh, service, and I've also been in watching uh, government and, uh, and politics and journalism uh, intertwine uh, for mm, just all my life. And... My brother is in journalism, was in journalism as a reporter, went to uh, Northwestern Medill uh, Graduate School there. And uh, so he would tell me, you know, I understand reporters. I was a reporter. You, you know, you're a lawyer. I'm a reporter. Well, at any rate, one of the things that 
I wonder is the, the mental state that a person who is doing an investigative bit or not even an investigative, actually reporting simply uh, straight news, that is what is important in a particular, oh, say a meeting on the budget or something, is there what of their own personal druthers, their own personal backgrounds, their own personal political, small p or big p political uh, views, filters its way into the stories that they cover or don't cover. Uh, and um, do you, does that trouble you at all? It's what I mean, I've seen some places where I think that's true. What do you think? Yeah, so that's a, gr- a great question. Um, I can tell you that, that when I was a journalist in the, in the 80s and early 90s, um, you know, for somewhat large newspapers, and ultimately the Detroit News at the time was the, it was the seventh largest paper when I started there. And by the time I left, because we had about 680,000 readers, by the time I left, we had about 420,000. We were like the 25th largest newspaper. And I, I thought I got to leave before this paper disappeared. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, there was really a strong ethic, a, a matter of pride, that as a reporter, you kept your own political views out of the story. And, and so you went to great extent to, you know, if there was a, if we were covering the legislature and there was a proposal, you know, we would talk to Republicans and we would talk to Democrats and we would try to provide a balanced perspective. And, and I think we did that pretty well. I mean, because it, people cared about it. Um, in fact, when you'd occasionally hear someone make a comment about something that sounded political, it would stick out and, and people would look at that person like, hey, you know, that's inappropriate. Um, in fact, you know, you, you oftentimes didn't know what the politics were of the people you were working with. So I, I think that was, you know, that was a time when um, that, I think for the most part, we were successful at that. I'm not saying that political views never got into, into stories because, you know, I've taken unconscious bias training and, uh, you know, there's bias everywhere. Of course, everyone has their own personal bias. And it's impossible to eliminate that completely, obviously. But, but I think what's happened since then is, uh, particularly because of social media, but also because of the kind of the economics of the news business, that more and more we have a number of different news outlets, and particularly websites and social media outlets, that where the, the journalists do have a, a bias or a perspective. You know, they're, they're aiming for a particular audience. Maybe they're aiming for a liberal audience or more of a conservative audience. And I could go through and list ones on either side of that spectrum, but I won't waste the audience's time. I think they probably are familiar with some of them. But the thing that's ironic, John, is that's really what was going on for a, most of the, the history of this country. Um, most of the, the, the news outlets in the 1800s and the early 1900s were, you know, you'd have a Republican newspaper and a Democrat newspaper. And, uh, and so it really, I think, uh, I'm a student a little bit of journalism history, and I really think in a way we, we had an unusual situation before the onset of the Internet because you, had, you didn't have as many news outlets. There were three main news networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. You didn't have CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. 
Um, and there was there was an attempt to tell it straight. Um, but I think as the number of outlets have gone, you know, you and I could start our own news agency this afternoon if we wanted to um, on Twitter or, or Facebook or wherever. So that has, has splintered it. And so I do think it's more of a problem today than it used to be. That's my uh, perspective. I'm happy to explore that, explore that further. Well, on that, on that line, I think that there, you talk about an implicit or an unrealized bias. Um, in talking to people who are in government and also people who are in the media uh, these days, and, and talking to just ordinary folks, there is this, this, I won't say a suspicion, but there is a fear that what is being put out, whether it is in the, uh, in the uh, bloggers or the, uh, the websites or whatever it happens, or the mainstream media, uh, is a product of either an implicit bias or an intentional bias uh, for or against a particular uh, political group, a political ethnic group, a particular uh, business group or whatever it happens to be. And I, I'm just curious as to whether or not <coughs> it is somewhere passed into the, the idea, uh, the ideas that you put uh, when, you, when you're in government now, that you put uh, on your calendar during the day if a reporter calls you. And I had reporters when I was down in D.C. I'd get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was, I was not in the PR office. I was not in the... <laughs> Verbal Affairs Office, I was in the deputy, at that time I was in the Attorney General's office, and at 3 o'clock in the morning I got a reporter calling me in it with very hostile questions um, that I wasn't prepared to answer because I didn't know about it, and I was sound asleep. So <laughs> it was one of the few times I actually had a good night's sleep up to that point. But just curious as to whether, you know, now as you are inside, I noticed in your, in your resume that one of the things you do is to uh, help uh, the attorney general, the uh, uh, inspector general, to deal with the media. Does this? Yeah, I, I, I had I had done that. I don't do that right now, but I certainly had quite a bit of you know interactions like that um, when I first started at the department uh, OIG office. Um, you know the the one thing I'll say is um, that for your listeners, that here's what I think the key is. I think I would tell your listeners that the, that the best way to protect yourself against um, news information that you feel is slanted one way or the other is to try to try to get as many different voices of news from, you know, for your news. So don't just rely on one website or one news organization, um, you know, because and, and in fact, there are they're actually. Uh, programs to educate uh, news consumers about how to see, you know, how to sniff through things that are are inaccurate or not, you know, are are biased one direction or another. And so, I think that's the key: is to not to not rely on just one organization and to be very skeptical of anything you see that doesn't come from sort of a conventional journalist, because like I said, there's a lot of sort of 
you know, bloggers and this sort of thing that aren't operating with the same set of sort of ethical compass. Um, and it, you know, I'm not saying they should assume it's not true, but I think that I would urge them to hold judgment, reserve judgment, wait and see if that really happens. Um, because some of those things don't pan out. And so you have to be a very skeptical news consumer, just like you need to be a skeptical uh, consumer of investment opportunities, like we talked about earlier. Right. Uh, I really think that's the key. Um, but I, I think because journalists, you know, when I was a reporter at the Detroit News and I was doing stories, I didn't have a Twitter account. Twitter didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if I had, um, you know, I, I'm sure it would have been sort of uh, inviting to uh, tweet about different things and maybe offer my opinions, that sort of thing. And I think that becomes kind of a dangerous, slippery slope. And then the, those people get instant feedback from the people on Twitter. Uh, the, and so then, you know, I think they get shaped by that feedback and it just it's uh, I don't know. We're, it's not a great time, I don't think, to be a news consumer. Other than you got a lot of different outlets that are providing information, that's sure. the best part about. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Jim Mitzelfeld, who is senior counsel to the uh, Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Justice uh, in Washington, and also a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Uh, so he is a journalist come, come law degree. Uh, this is John Smetank, and we'll be right back. And with respect, with our guest today is Jim Mitzelfeld. He is senior counsel to the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General in the Department of Justice. And as I've said before, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist as well. This is John Smetanka. So now, Jim, before we conclude, I want to I say, look, you've been investigating corruption, investigating uh, giving uh, uh, policy analysis, uh, dealing with politicians, um, inspecting na- uh, p- their behavior in office from the, uh, the, the journalistic side, but also now looking at people in government uh, who've got uh, allegations of uh, inappropriate behavior. And we've also talked about the victims that you've seen um, of criminal schemes that... Uh, that uh, regrettably lose their their life savings. Does it leave you with a, a cynicism about about human nature? I mean, it God, it's it just uh, it's like dealing with murder every single day of your life. It's uh, uh, it's uh, it it can bring you down, can it? It it can. You know, it's it's funny you ask that. Um, 
I think, uh, you know, I was raised in a somewhat volatile uh, household. And so I was, uh, you know, looking back on that, I was always kind of on high alert because Mm -hmm. I never, I was the youngest of three boys who my two brothers were much older than me. And so uh, between my older brothers and my father, I had to kind of always be on the lookout for trouble. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, my career has been, like you said, kind of, uh, at many times devoted to maybe the seamier side of, of the world um, and uh, where men have not been angels, uh, as I think Thomas Jefferson talked about. We wouldn't need government if men were angels. Um, but, uh, you know, you're right. It, it does kind of give you a, a, a skewed uh, view of humanity at times. And so I found it very important to kind of uh, try to, step away from that and, and focus on other things. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it, I don't know if you had that experience as well, but it, you do start to be very suspicious, very skeptical. I'm not super trusting. Um, and, uh, but luckily I'm married to a woman that, uh, uh, is a little, is made a little differently. And so, uh, um, she helps kind of me keep my uh, head on straight. Uh, but but it is a it's an occupational hazard I think. Well, it's I think Jim, and from my perspective, I have seen uh, many people who are been in prosecution or or defense or in in the in the criminal justice system or in government who at some point run out of the ability to um, prosecute one person without suspecting everybody around them. And they just, it's just, they, they get burned out. And, but there, God does give us a limited number of heartbeats and a limited, num- limited number of decisions that we have to make and we're allowed to make. And it's that, it's that maintaining your, your essential trust in human nature with caution. Uh, Reagan used to say, trust but verify. It seems to me that um, my experience, I come out of my experience of, with saying I really like people. I really like, uh, and my default position is to trust them until it's proven to me that uh, that person or that statement or that fact uh, is no longer a fact. It's not trustworthy. So <coughs> it's uh, getting balance in your life is another important thing. And you getting that balance can come from your family <coughs> or it can come, and or it can come from doing something which I know you're interested in, which is reading, which is we go back to the beginning of this uh, chat we've had, is talking about getting young people uh, and, frankly, other people so all the way through their careers to read. And unfortunately, we have a short period of time, but what do you do to, to uh, spice up that part of your life? Yes. Uh, well, thank you for, for asking about that. Uh, I think that's, I think you're exactly right. You know, it's important to have um, outside hobbies and pursuits where you get a chance to meet with people that, and uh, share common interests. And one of the things that, that I've gotten a great, a great deal of joy out of, uh, I'm in a book club with uh, 15 other guys. Um, and it this started back when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit. And uh, I got invited to join the club. And uh, since that, so it was mostly federal prosecutors, but now it's 
it's grown into uh, the friends of some of the original people. So we have an ER doctor, an FBI agent, a couple of lawyers in Detroit, and, and two of us are in, in Washington, D.C., um, the uh, expats from the group. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens is um, um, we take turns selecting a book, and then we try to meet every uh, couple of months to, uh, to talk about the book. And uh, in the 20 years I've been in the group, we've probably read about 100 books. And it's just a wonderful form of fellowship, um, you know, uh, for, for people that enjoy reading. I, I highly recommend trying to find a club like this or start one. And it could be a small number of people. Um, and one of the things we've really had fun with is, uh, is trying to recruit uh, authors of the books we're reading to talk to our clubs. Mm. And we've had quite, we've had quite a bit of success with that. Uh, at one point we, there were several people that made a field trip to the home of Conrad Black in Toronto. Whoa. Uh, who had written, yeah. Who had written a book about FDR. Um, and, uh, and we did another, we, we read the, the book killer angels about Gettysburg. And, uh, we took a trip, uh, all of us to Gettysburg and, and toured the, the battlefield with, uh, we had tour guides in our cars. I mean, um, and these sorts of experiences, there's, there's nothing like uh, sitting around and, uh, and talking about books. And, and I never leave these meetings without uh, all these things that I had never seen in the book I read. And your mind is expanded. And uh, so that, that's just been a great uh, source of fulfillment, um, you know. And, uh, and some of the books that we've read just recently – have really been their books that I really recommend to your listeners because they really expanded my my view of some things. So well, you know, it's interesting that that uh, you say all this because it's my view that every person who sits down and writes is um, talking about something. Often they are exposing, uh, sometimes willingly, sometimes unconsciously, um, thoughts that they have. That uh, haven't been articulated anyplace else, but they're about they're people. People talking about life, people talking about whether they're talking about fictional life or uh, biographies or whatever it is. Um, they're you're getting from them a perspective that you wouldn't get otherwise. It expands your mind, expands your understanding, and hopefully your um, appreciation of of human nature. That there's such. Uh, an infinite variety of uh, perspectives. Um, the same, sometimes for the same event, you may have um, not just ten people witnessed an accident, but their families. Uh, what what was their perspective of when their loved one was injured in a in, a, in a, a traffic accident or a shooting or something like that? And it's just uh, f- to me, it is fascinating, and I love uh, reading, and I love talking to people who do read. Uh, because I find them um, refreshing, giving me a different perspective on life and different pers- perspective on uh, what I do, which is I deal with all different kinds of people, and it, it helps me to deal with a wide range of people that, that come into my law practice or uh, had been, uh, were involved in uh, my life as a government, uh, uh, government employee. At any rate, go ahead. I was going to say the last thing I'll, I'll put a plug in for books is that the the this what I think is this anybody who wants to be a writer, whether they want to be a lawyer or a reporter or any or a novelist or anything, 
I think the single best way to become a better writer is to read. And one of the things I've, I've, I've found in my life, and it's almost bizarre, is that if I have to write something really important, um, I will pull out a book written by Herman Melville, you know, whether it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Moby, Moby Dick. Dick something. And, and if I read that for 30 minutes and then I have to write, my brain has just been placed into a different gear. Um, it's, it's, I can't explain it, but, but I've, I've read other people talking about it. And, and, uh, and you, when you look at all the great writers like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and Steinbeck, you know, th- these guys were voracious readers. Um, and so their brains were filled with the words of others and their own language became much more fluent. And so, so I, I can't recommend it enough. I'm glad you put in that pitch. Uh, Jim, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You still owe me a steak dinner some night, but uh, it's a pleasure having uh, talked to you, but also having worked with you over the years. Uh, Thank you, and um, we'll talk to you later. This is John Smetanka, Run With Respect, and we've been talking to Jim Mitzelfell, Senior Counsel to the uh, Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Justice and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. This is John Smetanka, and remember, we're on every week with, uh, with respect. And until next time, our motto is, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. <laughs>